Listener Production. I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their ancestors and elders present. I acknowledge the First Nations across the continent here have never ceded sovereignty and that First Nations were the first lawmakers. Welcome. This is Black Matters, a podcast that is about First Nations matters and why they matter. I'm Teela Reid, First Nations advocate, lawyer and proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. And joining me, as always, is my friend MC from the Hit Radio Network. And if this is your first time joining us on Black Matters and you're wondering who we are or why... We spell it B-L-A-K. Go back and listen to our podcast trailer. Now, we've spoken on this podcast uh, a couple of times in the past about the differences between New Zealand and Australia in regards to how they view their First Nations people, how their First Nations cultures are celebrated. And And it kind of struck a chord with me a couple of weeks ago Australia and New Zealand were colonised at around the same time-ish, in the same era, fair to say, Teela? The same era yeah. Yet both countries have dramatically different experiences between those colonisers and their First Nations people. New Zealand have a treaty between the settlers. That was established a long time ago and even mandated seats for Māori representatives in their parliament. Uh, our producer Simon has just been in New Zealand and everywhere he went, he heard people using Māori language, saw the language written everywhere. It just felt more unified with the broader culture of New Zealand. So so why is it like this? Why is there a difference to help unpack and talk about it? We're joined by an expert on the politics of Indigenous peoples, both Australian and New Zealand, and a proud Māori man himself, Professor Dominic O'Sullivan. Professor O'Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us on Black Matters. Yeah, kia ora. I'm uh, from the Te Rarawa Iwi in the far north of New Zealand. And as you said, I'm a professor of political science at Charles Sturt. We do indeed have campuses on Wiradjuri and Burrapai country, but also Nambri and Manawak, uh, from where I'm speaking today uh, in, in Canberra. Um, I, I, I've been interested in Māori politics, especially for as, as long as I can remember. But when I did my PhD, in New Zealand, I decided I really needed a, a comparative element to it and I became interested in what happens here in Australia, how things are done differently and, and how things are done similarly. So let's look at uh, the New Zealand model and how things are there for a moment. When you talk about the relationship between the colonisers and the Māori people, often the Treaty of Waitangi is something that gets talked about a lot. Are you able to just explain who's that between and when it was made. Yeah, I think it's to go helpful to go back a little bit further if we want to understand the differences between Australia and New Zealand as they are now. And while in Australia it's possible to say that colonisation really began with the arrival of the first fleet, you, you can identify a definite event, even a definite date, when that process began. Whereas in New Zealand, it's a little bit more difficult to say colonisation began on this date. Some people would say the Treaty of Waitangi was the starting point because it was a a ceding of sovereignty. But that view is is sharply contested and indeed the uh, Waitangi Tribunal in New Zealand 
has found that the, the treaty was no such thing. It was an agreement um, about how the political relationship would develop going forward. So it wasn't a case of, of the Māori chiefs who signed it saying to the British Crown, well, you can come in and take over and do what you like. It was an agreement that said, well, you can establish government over your settlers because there are a number of people starting to settle and things are a bit unruly and disorderly and we'd like you to exercise some authority over your people and make sure that the relationships between them and us are, are orderly and and just and, and so on. As part of that agreement, we're going to continue to exercise authority over ourselves, our own people, our land and resources. And the third point, you're going to give us the rights and privileges of British subjects. And in 1940, those rights and privileges weren't particularly extensive or, or exciting, but that idea of subjecthood has evolved and continues to evolve as New Zealand citizenship. That, I guess, explicit confirmation that Māori are not just people to be consulted when the government decides what it's going to do for them or about them. Uh, they're actually active participants in the public life of the state is, is a really important expression of the treaty in, in our life today. But if we go back to 1788, when the first fleet arrived, and we can say, well, that was the beginning of colonisation, and then we jump ahead only 52 years to 1840 when the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, British colonial thought had changed a great deal by that time. The instructions to the British explorers who, who first came to New Zealand was that they were to foster respectful relationships. Uh, they weren't to go and, you know, plant a flag and say this is ours, the way that, that happened in Australia. They were to foster good relationships. And then for a while they, they tried to do that. That's really why, in simple terms, we have a, a treaty in New Zealand and the British came and set up their colonies in Australia without attempting to get, negotiate such a, a thing. The, the political mindset and the political philosophy in Britain at that time was, was quite a bit different. Also, by the time the British came to New Zealand, they were starting to run out of money. The colonial budget was exhausted. They were no longer looking for places to set up penal colonies. That era in British history had, had finished. So there are those differences. And then also, I think, in New Zealand, being a, a geographically smaller territory, obviously the population was more concentrated. So it perhaps made resistance a little bit easier politically. And also uh, a common language obviously made it easier. So since that treaty was signed in the 1800s, has it changed at all since then? Have things progressed or are you still working on those principles from when it was originally signed? Well, the, the treaty itself hasn't changed. Like I said, it's got those three essential elements. Britain could establish government over its own people. Māori would retain authority over their own affairs and Māori would have available to them the rights and privileges of British subjects. So the nature of government's a bit odd. You know, it started off as being really only for 
having authority over the settler population. But then this business of subjecthood, which evolved into citizenship, intersects with that and I guess implies that Māori do also have a voice in government. Mm, and I just wanted to, yeah, I'm just really interested in the way in which you're explaining the Treaty of Waitangi in those three parts, but also I just wanted to kind of set the framework here. So when these negotiations were happening in the land of the long white cloud, Aroturua, now known as New Zealand, is it fair to say there was the moral force and authority of the Māori over themselves as a body politic in terms of this negotiation that um, came to fruition as known now as the Treaty of Waitangi and separately across the ditch here, there were active policies to essentially genocide and wipe First Nations people out off this continent. These two things are happening at the same time. Yeah, I guess that the Māori chiefs who signed the treaty did so in good faith. Clearly the relationship between the Māori people and the early settlers was a little bit different to the early relationship in Australia between the early settlers and First Nations people because clearly they got to a point where they were able to discuss and make a treaty. Now, this might be way off, but we've spoken about this on the podcast before. I was just trying to wrap my tiny brain around why things went so differently in those early stages when they were happening around a similar time. Was it as simple as when they arrived on the shores in Port Botany and they saw the Aboriginal people, did the settlers look at them and go, we're not threatened by them, we can take them, we don't need to follow protocols, we don't need to do the right thing, we can just go about our business, as opposed to arriving in New Zealand, seeing the Māori warriors with their face tattoos, were they more threatened by them? Is that why things went differently? Well, like I said, it was partly a a change in British philosophy and also they'd run out of money. They didn't want any more uh, penal colonies. You know, it, it, it costs a lot of money to fight wars and put together a, a militia to go out and, and massacre people and so on. Initially, the British weren't that keen on that in New Zealand. And also the, the geography, I think, is a, is a big factor here too. The, the Māori population was concentrated in a much smaller area. And in 1840 outnumbered the settler population quite significantly. In those early days, it probably wouldn't have been possible for Britain to take New Zealand by force. So they they really didn't have a choice but to negotiate a a treaty if they wanted to have an ongoing presence. You know, Britain, I guess, decided to, to use military force later on in the peace, but early on that wasn't the case and and relationships were much more amicable. So there wasn't a treaty established from the get-go here in Australia because they had that budget, because they had the energy, because they had the manpower, and that was always their plan. That's why it was never signed, nothing was ever done here, and we've gone down the path that we've gone down in Australia. Well, that's part of it, but there was also the the mindset, the terra nullius mindset, that if if land wasn't cultivated in an agricultural sense with farming fences and animals and so on, then people couldn't claim ownership of it. That was a a theory developed by the English political theorist John Locke, and that had a great deal of influence in those early days. And I think that this is a very key point 
to really stop and pause here on this because this kind of narrative of Terranalias, First Nations peoples in so-called Australia see themselves as equal to or part of their First Nation land and waters. Many people would say that, in fact, there is a history of the way in which we cultivated and cared for the land in a way that while it might not meet the legal definition that colonisers brought here to Australia, it was certainly one of the ways in which Australia was invaded and colonised based on the adoption of the way in which property law itself was then claimed. Do you have any observations about this? Well, I, I think it's important to yeah, consider treaties as having a twofold purpose. First is to, to put right what's happened in the past, and the second, as, as far as one can, putting things right completely is, um, yeah, we're too far into the colonial project for that to occur. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything. That doesn't mean that compensation can't be sought, both financial and in terms of you know, looking into the future, commitments to proper education for Wiradjuri people, for example. Uh, we all know that schooling doesn't work as well for Wiradjuri kids as it does for, for many others. An effective and meaningful treaty, I think, would address that. There might be someone listening right now that doesn't realise that the Wiradjuri people are just a singular nation in a country made up of hundreds of nations as opposed to New Zealand that has a singular Māori people. Is that why things uh, haven't progressed here anywhere near as much as they appear to have there? Well, I, I think Māori certainly have a, a common language, you know, cultural similarities, but the people who signed the Treaty of Waitangi did it on behalf of their hapu, what's in English called subtribes. And and those hapu in eighteen forty were regarded as independent political communities. You know, those political communities certainly cooperate a great deal, but at times during um the the New Zealand wars in the nineteenth century, uh there certainly wasn't that universal cooperation. Some uh, Hapu and, and tribes fought with the British against other Māori Hapu and tribes in order to, to settle pre-existing disagreements and, and for all sorts of, of reasons. So the politics of, of the time of the wars weren't quite so simple. But yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure that ignorance of Indigenous nationhood and the, the scope and diversity of Indigenous nationhood among non-Indigenous peoples in Australia is probably quite profound. Many, if not most, non-Indigenous Australians have probably never met an Indigenous person. And one would be hard-pressed to find a non-Māori person in New Zealand who had never met a Māori person or never seen one on television, for example, or, or listened to a Māori person on the radio. So seeing how things have played out over history in New Zealand differently to how they are here in Australia. When you look at the current model that we are going to be ticking a box for with this referendum later this year in regards to a voice being enshrined in the constitution, do you think it's a model that can work? Is, is it a model that can give us some positive steps and maybe 
replicate or, or do its own good work like the Treaty of Waitangi has done in New Zealand? Well, I think like the Treaty of Waitangi, it can do enormous good work and important good work. It, it's not a singular solution to justice, however one might want to um, define or conceptualise justice. I think if we expect it to be a singular solution, then we'll be disappointed. But that, that's an unrealistic test to apply to any kind of public institution or, or political entity. What I think it will do potentially of, of real significance is ensure that First Nations people are always in a position to put matters of concern to them on the public agenda. Because when the voice speaks mm. on whatever issue, it will do so with authority. And when you speak with authority, you, you get into the paper, you get on TV, you get in, yeah, you get onto the radio, and that potential for political influence by speaking with authority, by being a voice of authority, is um, is one that can never be discounted. You know, one of the um, important things about the voice being a voice to Parliament is that as such, it's a voice to the Australian people. And while one doesn't want to discount the importance of speaking to members of Parliament and speaking to members of the executive and the public servants who advise the executive, speaking to the Australian people can also be really important and it almost is an example of speaking above politics or speaking around politics. When, I guess, the politics of speaking to members of parliament and members of cabinet gets too difficult, as it often does and often will, being able to go around them to the people is, I think, an important power. And you go around them to the people simply by being a voice of authority that can get on TV when it has something to say. Now, here at Black Matters, we also believe that language matters. And we like to leave everyone at the end of every episode with a First Nations word or a piece of language that we hope eventually, you know, this country certainly gets to a place where these words and phrases and pieces of language are used in everyday conversation, which would should, which should be wonderful. Now, Professor O'Sullivan, you've got something from the Treaty of Waitangi to leave us on. Yeah, well, one of the words, or arguably the most important word that the Treaty of Waitangi uses is Rangatiratanga. And the treaty was signed by Rangatira. Rangatira uh, basically translates into English as chief. Rangatiratanga is the political authority. So when Māori people in New Zealand, you know, say, for example, that they want to exercise their rangatiratanga in education, for example. That means exercise their political authority to have influence over what happens to their kids when they go to school, who teaches them what they learn, how they learn, and, and the purpose of schooling. We want to exercise rangatiratanga over our, our land and resources. That means we want authority to make decisions about how the land is used, about how the rivers are kept clean, um, about how we preserve the uh, 
fishery resources, for example. All those are expressions of rangatiratanga, chiefly authority. And um, and in English, part of that is self-determination. I think self-determination's broader because you get self-determination through being in Parliament, for example, whereas rangatiratanga is an authority over Māori resources and Māori being. And um, it's, a, it's a very important word and one that we hear used a lot in political discourse in New Zealand. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your comparative knowledge, your generosity as well of opening up to us on Black Matters uh, Māori language. We have really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank you. And don't forget, there's a bunch more episodes of Black Matters for you to check out as well. Uh, why we do acknowledgements of country, the history of treaty and voice in Australia, and we even catch up with an elder. Big back catalogue ready for you to listen to. And if you like listening to Black Matters, and we hope that you do, we hope that you tell your friends, your family to come and listen every week, and you want to hear and support Australia's diverse and contemporary First Nations music, we've created an entire radio station. It's called Indigenous, the DAB station. You can find it now on the listener app. Teela, as always, it's been a pleasure, mate. Always. We'll do it again next week, eh? See ya.